I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we are joined by a longtime friend of the pod, cultural critic and material girl in her own right, Margaret H. Willison. Margaret, pronouns she, her, is a culture writer and podcaster. You may have heard her on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour or know her from her newsletter, Two Bossy Dames. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. And uh, thank you so much for honoring the H middle initial. You know, not every podcast does. And it's a very important part of my identity. I love your identity. And I'm so glad that you're here with us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. Okay. You guys, we're here to talk about Taylor Swift. Finally. It's been broiling. People have been clamoring. They have. Give the people what they want is what we always say. So we are so lucky to have you on because you, as a cultural critic, have in fact written about Taylor Swift. I I have. I also just recently taught a class on Taylor Swift and confessional writing for like our friendly organization, Not Sorry Productions. You are essentially a Taylor Swift expert. You know, it really depends on how you define that. I've been on, for example, a bunch of pop culture happy hour episodes about Taylor. And on one of them, I indicated that I was not aware that there was a special significance to track five on all of her albums. And I did get at least one tweet saying, how could you possibly have someone who doesn't know the significance of track five on to speak about Taylor Swift? They're obviously not qualified. So (laughs) what I would say is, is as with any topic, as, as academics, I'm sure you understand this, right? That there is a degree of expertise that uh, passes as substantive, for the general population that within a dedicated field is not held to be meaningful. (laughs) And I would say that that is the amount of expertise I have on Taylor Swift. I love it. (laughs) Well, then in that case, let's just, we're just going to start, we're just going to start gentle. I just want to ask, I want to ask the two of you, which Taylor Swift album you have a particular relationship to? The album that I have listened to the most and love most is definitely Folklore. Uh, but for the class that I just ran, we we listened to the entire catalog. So now I have like a very different emotional relationship to all of the albums in her catalog and a whole new perspective on how much internalized misogyny was influencing my understanding of her early work. 
uh, that we can dig into or not as as the moment as the moment presents itself. But 1989 was the album where I consciously like I stopped fighting the fact that I liked her. <laughs> nice. That was my turning point album. Yeah. How about you, Hannah? Literally identical answer, like comically identical <laughs> answer. 1989 <laughs> is the first album that I like downloaded the entire thing and actually listened to it dedicatedly rather than just like catching her singles and folklore is the album I've listened to the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have so much in common with the two of you. So clearly there's something happening here. So well I have theories about that. You've come to the right place. Listen, I can't wait to just talk at you for the next two hours about my relationship to Taylor Swift. And um, I wrote the script, so that's basically all we're doing. So uh, let's just jump into the next segment and I'll get started, okay? Sounds good. Excellent. Okay. Normally in our Why This, Why Now segment, we ask the ruthlessly objective question, (laughs) what are or were the historical, ideological, and material conditions for our object of study to become zeitgeisty? But in this episode, we're going to make a bit of space for our feelings because they might just be a key ingredient to those material conditions. So like I said, I'm just going to talk at you for the next two hours about me being (laughs) a Taylor Swift convert. Going to put my mic away. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Margaret, you, I think, really identified a central, a central point to my, um, what I will call... Your thesis. No, not, we're not, oh God, Margaret, we are not there yet, girl. Oh no. (laughs) You think we're ready Uh, for a thesis? Not, no, no, there's so many, I have so many more feelings (laughs) to tell you about. Like you described internalized misogyny as being one of the reasons why you didn't allow yourself to like Taylor Swift's music. And I describe myself as having a militant disinterest. Like I took a Mm -hmm. great deal of pleasure in being publicly disinterested in Taylor Swift (laughs) and what she was producing. Whereas after folklore, I did this deep dive like gradually, very gradually, mind you, but deep dive into her catalog and would constantly be texting my sister-in-law, who is nine years younger than me (laughs) and has always loved Taylor Swift and be like, hey, hey, Jill, have you heard Red? It's like really good. (laughs) And she'd be like, yeah, Marcel, I know. I know it's good. Hey, hey, Jill, have you heard Reputation? That album slaps. (laughs) She'd be like, yeah, I know. I know. Oh, my God. So, Margaret, since you are our guest cultural critic, why don't Hannah and I ask you just some, like, helpful primer questions to, like, presumably we're not the only people who have had this sort of, like, strange relationship with Taylor Swift. I imagine lots of our listeners have, too. So... I suspect so. And there's so much lore. Okay. Well, let's get into it. And we're going to start with a big one, which is, can you talk to us a little bit about the parasocial relationship that fans have with Taylor Swift, you know, particularly around that that very carefully managed image she has? So what I would say about this parasocial relationship, the intensity and what I think is unique about it is the sense of reciprocity, right? Because, you know, how I would distinguish it from like, the relationship Beyonce has with her fans is it's like Beyonce is like a deity mm-hmm. who has graced us with her presence. Mm-hmm. And like if mother says that we are to wear like silver 
to all of the shows in September for her birthday month, despite the fact that it's like three days before we're going to some of the shows and we've probably spent six months planning our outfits. Like mother asked for silver, <laughs> mm-hmm. so she will get silver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be clear, I think that the Swift fans would would be just as eager to follow a directive from their dear leader, but that the dynamic is different. And the way that I described it on Pop Culture Happy Hour is it when you go to an Eras concert, it is like you are going to see your best friend get married, right? It's this huge mm. event, right? But there is this sense of pride and mutuality and mutual understanding that completely informs why it's so important and so special. So instead of a dress code, it's friendship bracelets. I mean, right. And that's not even something, it's not like at any point Taylor Swift was like, everybody make friendship bracelets, right? It was just like, there's a stray line in one song. And because you read these the way that you would read, like, you know, if, if your best friend was like, hey, can you look at these text exchanges for me? And you'd be like, yes, I can do a PhD doctoral dissertation on these text exchanges because <laughs> I understand it's important. That is the way that uh, Taylor's missives are received by her audience. And that has been a construction of a number of years. But I would say that like one of the big factors is just like this is an audience that's literally grown up with her. She has been making music in the public eye since the release of her self-titled debut in 2006, uh, when she would have been 17. That's the beautiful thing about one of the Wild. albums being named 1989. Mm, so helpful. I always know the year she was born. <laughs> Very helpful for orienting yourself. Okay, so Margaret, <laughs> let's talk about the albums, okay? So, so at this time of recording, Taylor Swift has released... 13 studio albums since 2006 and her and her 14th which you pointed out in our episode uh script comments her 14th album a taylor's version of 1989 is going to be released in late october so okay so for the uninitiated can you talk about what these taylor's versions are why is taylor swift re-recording and re-releasing some of her older albums. So, as is often the case with Taylor, there is Taylor's version of why <laughs> this is happening. And then there's maybe the sort of the more, uh, the, 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 the drier version that's a little bit more about business tactics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, one, of the, one of the, like, brilliant capitalist things about Taylor is that there is no separation between emotional drive and sort of capitalist drive, right? So in the Mm. Taylor's version of why she has to make these things, she left her old record label right after the release of 2017's Reputation um, and moved to a new label. Because she signed that deal when she was, again, 15, it was structured the way most deals for debut musicians are, which is a lot of money and care is being put into this person's work. But that means that the work that they are producing, instead of it being something that they get to own outright and sort of carry away with them wherever they want to go, it belongs to the record label. So the master recordings for all of her songs for the first six albums belonged to her record label. And as is the case with many artists, like uh, famously Prince had wild disputes about this. And that's part of why he became the artist formerly known as Prince. Taylor wanted to be able to buy back her masters. Reportedly, 
uh, Scott Borchetta, the head of Big Machine Records, would not sell them to her. That's Taylor's version. The record says maybe he tried to, but it like wasn't on terms that she found favorable, and so she declined. Mm. And then, back to Taylor's version, in a Betrayal Layered Upon Perfidy, he sold the record label and her masters to a man named Scooter Braun. Never trust a scooter. Do never trust a scooter. It is like a bad name. No offense to any scooters listening. A little offense to any scooters listening, <laughs> unless you are a non-binary and chose the name that's Scooter. True. In which this case, this is exactly what slaps. I was thinking, and 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 did it in honor of um the the Muppet. The yeah. Muppet's oh, good. So mm, true. Yeah. I love Scooter. Only good one. Either way, Scooter Braun. Bad news. We only know his name because Taylor Swift took against him so severely. But <laughs> he is. Or was at that time a music manager and just sort of like a like a like a like a mogul, mm. aspiring mogul. Mm-hmm. And he's specifically behind the career of one Justin Bieber. In Taylor, Justin Bieber is a problematic figure. Oh, he's also attached to some small degree. He was managing Kanye West mm-hmm. at a time when uh, he and oh. Taylor were God, really totally at odds with one about, another. I'm gonna let you finish. Wow. Whew. Okay. Uh, Scooter Braun basically committed the sin of being attached to a number of figures who Taylor felt had bullied her mm-hmm. at various points in her career, namely Justin, Kanye, and Kanye's wife, Kim Kardashian. Oh, my God. And now he owns her masters. Right. And this is an emotionally unacceptable situation. And that is what necessitated Taylor Swift creating the three Taylor's versions that we have. Uh, the fourth that is coming out, and the two that presumably will follow. She's creating recordings as similar as possible to the masters that she owns herself so that she can functionally replace the use of those masters in everyone's life with audio recordings she has complete control over and over which she from which she makes exclusive money rather than this money going again in in a in a perfidy a perfidy of epic proportions to this this villainous man scooter braun uh, who's since sold it to another company but either way that's that's the version and it is this situation where again there's just perfect union between taylor's emotional needs and what will benefit Taylor Swift Incorporated. Mm. And those unions are so complete that I think it often makes it seem suspicious. But I will argue that I think it is I think it is sincere. (laughs) Okay, this I think will be a quick one. Can you just tell us what the Eras Tour is and what Eras refers to? Sure. So the Eras Tour is the world tour that Taylor Swift is currently in the midst of. And it is meant to pay tribute to sort of each of the albums she's recorded over the entirety of her career and the different sort of era of her like style and self-presentation and uh, artistic output that that coheres into. And this is inspired very simply by the fact that between the last time she was able to tour for Reputation around 2017 or 2018, And now, 2023, when this store began, uh, she released four completely original albums 
and two and a half Taylor's versions. She writes so fast. <laughs> She's so prolific. And that's been that's been true of her since she was a teenager. Like you can hear her co-writers from that time period speak to that their like primary role was just editing her, um, not actually creating. But I say two and a half Taylor's versions because she released a Speak Now Taylor's version, which is the re-release of her third album. The first one she wrote completely by herself in the middle of her North American era's tour. So I'm just going to round up and say three. I'm just going to round up and say she released three Taylor's versions. I think that's completely fair. Yeah. Uh, But still, that's seven albums of new material to some extent that had never been played in a stadium that her audience had never gotten to sing along to. And, you know, it suggested itself and it's been very successful. Okay, so Margaret, you started touching on this already in this idea of of attempting to regain control of her first six studio albums, right? So Mm -hmm. re-recording in order to gain control of her masters. You mentioned that it is both emotional as well as financial for her. But yes, can you talk a little bit about like what it means for listeners too? What Taylor Swift has done with her career that's so remarkable Right. Is she's created art that is both just like broadly accessible and sort of irresistibly delightful. Right. That'll bring outsiders in. Right. But she has also created art that is sometimes a little bit more alienating and also just like very, very rewarding of deep engagement. And Mm. in the case of her surprise releases during the pandemic and then the onset of the Taylor's version project. She's just kind of a genius about her moment in time. And I don't know how consciously she understood how valuable creating these very sort of interior focused indie aesthetic albums in the midst of everyone being locked into their homes was going to be. But for obvious reasons, they were like, really great, I'm just going to lie inside with my headphones albums. Can I read this this quote from Swift when she released Folklore? Because it's so pertinent to what you are saying. So she wrote in the announcement, quote, Most of the things I had planned this summer didn't end up happening. But there is something I hadn't planned on that did happen. And that thing is my eighth studio album, Folklore. Surprise! Before this year, I probably would have overthought when to release this music at the quote-unquote perfect time, but the times we're living in keep reminding me that nothing is guaranteed, end quote. And that's fascinating because it is a narrative about not releasing things at the perfect time that frames this release as the perfect Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And she lives at the intersection of these kind of contradictions all of the time. Like, she's the most powerful pop star in the world, arguably. But also, she is kind of like a, she's a permanent underdog, right? And like, somehow she really does manage to embody sincerely both of those identities. And you're like, but how? And you're like, I don't know, she just does it. (laughs) But here with those albums, I think that you do see that this is also a natural outgrowth of her artistic trajectory. Like, I think she's maturing a ton as an artist, Um, Between the release of these albums 
and uh, her previous world tour, she created a documentary where you really do get a sense of behind the scenes just how much her life up to that point has been geared towards receiving public approval. And you also are glimpsing the fact that she's realized that that's a scam. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. a scam for women. That Mm -hmm. being a woman is the opposite of eating a Reese's cup. There's no right way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really I'm really interested in both sort of Margaret. I hope I hope in the in the in the final segment when we like, you know, really get into the to the the meat of the songs meat gross um <laughs> the protein i'm interested in 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 sort of what you're saying about internalized misogyny and not liking swift's early work and also what brought me like what what made me really love her is her more political feminist work like i kind of fell in love with her when she wrote a murder ballad <laughs> like, so can you talk about about that shift a little bit yeah So I think what you see most prominently in Folklore and Evermore, the two albums that she released, Surprise, during the pandemic, is that where with an album like Reputation, there's this very clear divide between like, these are the radio singles and this is how I'm presenting myself and my story in those. And then these are the album tracks or the late release singles. And this is where I'm hiding my like, secret, vulnerable, complex heart, right? These albums, when she wrote and released them, I don't think she was thinking about how they were going to play in a stadium. I don't think she was thinking about what is the press narrative going to be about them. I think she got to be in a much more unformed creative space and that these are all sort of soft underbelly. So what I'd say is that there's a complexity in those albums that's been present throughout her work, in really meaningful ways, but that instead of it being buried, where you had to go and find it, you had to care enough to look for it, it was right at the top. So there's that element. And then I also think it's just a major evolution point for her as an artist. Up until this point, she was in brief relationships and she was sort of happy to regurgitate parts of them in her art and have that be part of her public image. And I think at this point, she'd started realizing that is a fool's errand for one thing. And for another thing, she'd been in an ostensibly happy relationship for six years that had stayed happy in part because of how private she kept it. So I think that prompted her to branch out more and to write from a fictionalized place much more often. And you see how like rich a vein that is for her in those albums. And it means that she's writing something like Nobody No Crime, where she, Taylor, truly, even on her, even in her villain era, her her album, her her villain era anthem is "Look what you made me do." Yeah, right. It's like you did this. <laughs> yeah. You did this to me. Yeah, yeah. So she couldn't write a murder ballad before that because Taylor Swift, the construct, can't own that kind of mess. But because mm. in this space she gets to play around with fictional characters, mm-hmm. it's like narrator on "Nobody, No Crime." They can kill a man if they need to, right? And I think that that's really spectacular. It also leads to her playing around a little bit more visibly with queer signifiers. Yeah, like Lavender Haze. Yes, which obviously I responded to a lot. And then, like you say, on Midnights, I think you can see what does it look like when she's taking the things she's learned from the pandemic period, right? And reinterpreting them back in her role 
as self-mythologizing. And uh, I think the results are really interesting. I can't help but notice that we are really drawn to actually talking about the like lyrics and content of her songs. So, Marcel, is there some theory that might help explain why we are focusing so much more on content here than, say, how, like, music streaming has increased the importance of touring? (laughs) Yes, Hannah. Yes, there is. Oh, my God. Will you tell me about it? Yeah, let's get into it in the next segment. Marcel, I know you really want us to skip this the theory we need segment entirely and just collectively vibe to Evermore. But I actually really want to hear your thesis about Taylor Swift and not even you can base a thesis on vibes alone. (laughs) You're right, Hannah. I accept my limitations. But you know what I can base a thesis on? The Female Complaint by Lauren Berlant. Okay, now, Hannah, I know for a fact that Lauren Berlant is one of your personal favorite critical and feminist theorists, and you brought up Berlant's notions of what we're going to talk about today, intimate publics, as well as cruel optimism, which we're not going to talk about today, in our previous episode on the Queer Eye reboot. So would you be willing to remind our listeners what exactly Berlant means by intimate publics? Ah, absolutely. So, if you've already listened to our Queer Eye episode, you may remember that an intimate public is an example of what Michael Warner calls a discourse public. So that's a group of strangers who become part of a community specifically organized around texts and their circulation. And that's texts in a very general sense. It may (laughs) include, for example, songs. Wink! So... While anyone can theoretically be part of a discourse public, intimate publics are specifically populated with people Berlant describes as non-dominant people, especially though not exclusively women. If you are hearing this description of a discourse public right now and going, wait, isn't that just the thing I call being a fan of something? (laughs) Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. These are fandoms. We are talking about fandoms. Mm For sure. We just call them discourse publics because we're academics and we're awful. Michael Warner was never a fan of anything. (laughs) It's how academics describe fandom because we don't know how to, because we're dead inside. Well, you can't admit that there's joy in your work. It would delegitimize it. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) Sorry, Hannah. Sorry. Go ahead. So here's how Berlant describes intimate publics in the preface to their book, The Female Complaint. Quote, an intimate public whether linked to women or other non-dominant people, flourishes as a porous, effective scene of identification among strangers that promises a certain experience of belonging and provides a complex of consolation, confirmation, discipline, and discussion about how to live as an ex, end quote. That was perfect, Hannah. Thank you so much. Okay, so there are a number of reasons why I think that Taylor Swift, the pop culture phenomenon, not the person, it's important we are now talking strictly about Taylor as the artist and not Taylor who had a red scarf one time. So the reasons why I think Taylor Swift, the pop culture phenomenon, 
can be helpfully understood by diving into intimate publics is what Berlant calls, quote unquote, women's culture. So Lauren Berlant, not a biological essentialist. So the framing and discussion of women's culture is important. Margaret, would you do us the honor of please reading Berlant's description of what women's culture is? I am honored with you to be asked. Quote, this women's culture is distinguished by a view that the people marked by femininity already have something in common and are in need of a conversation that feels intimate, revelatory, and a relief even when it is mediated by commodities, and even when its particular stories are about women who seem, on the face of it, vastly different from each other and from any particular reader. End quote. Any particular reader or listener. Or listener. Yes. So Berlant further adds that, quote, one may have chosen freely to identify as, this is the X, but for our purposes here, a woman. One may be marked by traditional taxonomies. Those details matter, but not to the general operation of the public sense that some qualities or experiences are held in common. End quote. So in other words, the texts that constitute so-called women's culture take for granted that the consumers, quote, already share a worldview and emotional knowledge that they have derived from a broadly common historical experience, end quote. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is really key. So, so for our purposes, Berlant is basically saying that consumers of women's culture are perceived as having a commonly lived history and that the narratives and texts of women's culture are presumed to depict that history while simultaneously, you know, they're claiming like, we're just we're just talking about what it's like to be a woman, but they're actually shaping narratives and conventions of what it means to be a woman. And the intimate publics that crop up around women's culture promise the consumers a better experience of social belonging by expressing these like sensationalized and embodied experiences of living as woman. Mm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Margaret, would you put this in the context of Taylor Swift for us? Absolutely. In the context of Taylor Swift, we could say, for example, that women's culture presumes that all women know the experience of being in love. Swift's songs, major texts of women's culture, depict being in love as tumultuous, devastating, thrilling, and risky, etc. Her music might reflect a listener's experience with love or romance, but more importantly, it tells listeners that tumultuous, devastating, thrilling, and risky, etc. is what they should expect being in love to feel like. We, consumers of Taylor Swift, take pleasure in the intimate public of her fandom because being a woman is hard, but at least we have read Perenne's Taylor's version to help us get through our unhealthy relationships and inevitable breakups. Okay, so Margaret, I admit I wrote that and I wrote it for you to say because I wanted you to say it. I wanted to hear it from you. And I also want to hear what else this whole context might bring to mind. Is there anything you would add? 
So the thing that I find sort of most interesting about putting Taylor Swift in conversation with this idea of intimate publics and also with the way that intimate publics are um, both relational and kind of dictatorial Mm. is that what I think you see as you trace the course of Taylor Swift's career is a growing awareness that she is the author of other people's experiences and Mm. growing into that power and and embracing that power to create um vastly more complex understanding and like it's cute that you mentioned red perens taylor's version because <laughs> i feel like that's the ultimate illustration of it mhm that album is like sort of where she starts to enter a period of real artistic maturity mm-hmm. i think in mm-hmm. the eyes of the world and it is the final one she's doing, at least partly in the country music vein, before she switches over to being a pop star, which means that it's kind of the peak of emotional vulnerability being a big part of how she is presenting herself to the outside world. And so on that, we get the short four-minute version of All Too Well, which is a very good song in and of itself about her relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal. But... It is one that follows conventions like much more closely, right? Like it mm-hmm. fits our expected narrative for what a song about like an abruptly ended relationship that should have been more looks like and is this very sort of beautiful idealized picture of what young love is. And what you see with the Taylor's version, which is sort of, again, this is her in her artistic maturity, reclaiming the work of her youth and taking full ownership of it, but also taking full ownership of those narratives and getting to make them richer and more complex. And in that, you get the masterpiece that is the All Too Well Perens 10-minute version. I would say that's an incredible example of how much more complicated she gets to make those stories and what it looks like for her to be the known author of an intimate public rather than sort of the unwitting perpetrator of one. Mm. Mm. So that makes so much sense to me because what Berlant is essentially saying here is that the power of the intimate public is that while assuming all quote unquote women have these shared histories, shared experiences, shared lived histories. What's really powerful about the intimate public is that it takes the otherwise regular experience, the sort of sentimental, the the average, the everyday, the not special, but it elevates it to something that is special and that is general and that is real while always still being specific and unique to the individual consumer. And so the idea that Taylor Swift is writing these experiences for people to have just makes so much sense that it makes so much sense that she's able to take something as simple as a a three-month relationship a three-month relationship, and turn it into a masterpiece, an emotionally poignant masterpiece. I'm convinced by both of you that Swifties are part of an intimate public, but I think there's more to unpack around what Berlant calls the female complaint, the title of the book. 
Such a good point. Yes, you are so right, Hannah. We're barely scratching the surface. Margaret, could you do me a favor, please, and read how Berlant themselves describes or summarizes the female complaint? Absolutely. Quote, women live for love, and love is the gift that keeps on taking. End quote. So, in other words, sentimentality and complaint are two sides of the same coin? Yes, I think so. And Berlant calls them, quote, two ends of this commercial convention with feminism as a kind of nosy neighbor, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. I include that because I love it. Hannah. So good. Hannah, would you please tell us about the mode of complaint? Yeah, absolutely. I will. But I'm going to warn you, this is the last Berlant quote I'm going to read. Tough but fair. Listeners, you are welcome to be relieved at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody open up for the airplane. The airplane is a Berlant quote. Quote, the mode of the female complaint foregrounds witnessing and explaining women's disappointment in the tenuous relation of romantic fantasy to lived intimacy. Critical, they are also sentimental and therefore ambivalent. The complaint genres of women's culture tend to foreground a view of power that blames flawed men and bad ideologies for women's intimate suffering, all the while maintaining some fidelity to the world of distinction and desire that produced such disappointment in the first place. End quote. Marcel, this is such a good explanation for the complaint that people have that... (laughs) Swift is constantly framing herself as the victim of bad romances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't really and probably don't have time to get into the apparently autobiographical meanings related to Swift's music on the whole. But it is, I think, worth bringing up here to stress that her success and popularity are not the result of telling listeners about her shitty boyfriends. Autobiography, a wonderful, wonderful field. It cannot account for the intensely intimate identification so many listeners have with her music because it's not about her. It's about the experience of being a woman. Secondly, the men in her songs, while undeniably based on her exes, (laughs) are not literally her exes. They are characters. They are the flawed men. And bad ideologies. Bad ideologies. Bad ideologies. We can all agree bad ideologies are the real villain. Oh, man. Big time. You're so right. Listen, we have nothing left to say. Let's just let's just vibe to love her. (laughs) No, Marcel. No, I'm too jacked on scholarship for vibes. I need a thesis. And Marcel, I need it to be so long. (laughs) I'm going to give you the longest thesis. You won't even believe it. And it's not even based on all that much research. Okay. (laughs) It's based on vibes. God damn it. I'm so excited. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay. Marcel, we are mere moments away from vibing to midnights. But first, because this segment is called In This Essay, I Will, I am going to need to hear from you a sort of cogent, succinct thesis statement that summarizes the key takeaways and the sort of overarching premise of the argument that you are making. Can you give me one of those? I can give you cogent. I can't give you succinct. Buckle up. (laughs) In 2019, Taylor Swift's rights to her own music became a matter of public conversation. Unable to purchase her own masters from her former label, Big Machine, Swift has embarked on a project of reclaiming her catalog by re-recording her first six studio albums and releasing them as, quote, Taylor's versions, end quote. This project, a massive undertaking in its own right, has had the side effect of bringing her earlier styles and sounds back into relevance, reminding fans and non-fans alike of her generic and lyrical roots at a time when she was experimenting with her voice and generic breadth under contract with her new label, Republic Records. The global COVID-19 pandemic that wreaked havoc on all of us prevented Swift from touring Lover, her first new studio album with Republic. At a time when we were all struggling with an unknown future, plans indefinitely postponed, isolation, depression, etc., Swift surprised listeners with the sudden release of a brand new studio album, Folklore, an intimate, poignant soundtrack to pandemic life. A few months later, she did it again with Evermore. The release of these unanticipated albums amplified the already intense parasocial relationship fans have with Swift. The albums felt like gifts, like reassurances from a friend. Moreover, their radical departure from the pop sounds that characterized 1989, Reputation, and Lover demonstrated to not-yet-fans like you and me that Swift's songcraft could not be pigeonholed. By the time pandemic restrictions had relaxed enough to make planning a tour feasible, Swift had no less than six studio albums to tour. The aforementioned Lover, Folklore and Evermore, as well as Fearless, Taylor's version, Red, Taylor's version, and her 10th studio album, Midnight's <laughs> A Return to Pop. Swift's Era's Era is not only a celebration of femme culture broadly defined, it is supercharged with pent-up intimacy. The multiple genres of identification that Swift's eras offers to fans functions as reassurance that no matter which era speaks to you, your lived experience is legible, visible, identifiable by other Swifties, even though, as Berlant would say, your lived experience is, quote, not shared by many or any, end quote. In this essay, I will... Wait! (laughs) We have to talk about the 10-minute version of All Too Well. (laughs) Did I do that convincingly? Perfectly. Perfectly. So urgent. 
urgent interruption. Oh. An urgent interruption. Marcel, I love, I love this thesis. Obviously, <laughs> we're clearly caught in some sort of war of escalation <laughs> at some point. <laughs> at some point, these thesis statements are going to be full 20-minute conference <laughs> papers we just deliver in the middle of the podcast episodes. I know. That's fine. <laughs> I feel like I am already satisfied by understanding that what drew me to Taylor Swift was ultimately her deploying her role as like the the poet laureate of the women's intimate public <laughs> to actually expand the repertoire of experiences and affects that get to be part of that women's public, which is why I suddenly was like, oh, I love her because now she has songs about being like a terrible, badly behaved, feral murderess. <laughs> and I'm like, at last, I feel represented. Because like, I'm not pining for Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> I don't care that he kept her scarf. I'm indifferent to that experience. But I am extremely interested in murder. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it happens to deserving men. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm satisfied. I have, um, uh, you know, achieved intellectual completion. <laughs> yeah. Hannah may not care about Taylor's relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal, but she mm -hmm. doesn't speak for all of us because I defo care. Yeah. I want to I want to hear. <laughs> I want to hear about what you love about the 10 minute version of of All Too Well. Is, this is the only this is the first and only significant song that I told Hannah that um, must be listened to as homework in preparation for this essay. But I gave everybody else like a like a big long list and we haven't talked about any of them and that's OK. You know, you and me, Marcel, we can get offline afterwards and just go ham. We've got <laughs> half an hour left to record. Just go ham for the next half hour. <laughs> you know, we'll figure it out. But Specifically, this pair of songs, the original uh, radio release, All Too Well, from 2012, and the epic 2021 10-minute re-released version, incidentally, the longest pop song to ever top the Billboard Hot 100. And what is great about these is not only that they allow me to use the literal most academic term in my vocabulary, which is that uh, the 10-minute version is a polympsest. I was, oh my God, Margaret. Yeah, you're Margaret. Welcome, in my head, I was like, I it's was like, is Margaret about to say that this is palimpsestic? Of course she is. Of course she yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Ooh. Love to use an academic term that uh, Microsoft Word for a very long time did not recognize as a word. Can we define, can we define palimpsest sure. real quick? Uh, so a palimpsest is specifically, it is a piece of paper where uh, multiple texts have kind of been written over one another with time, where the experience of it is not merely any one text, but it is this collective amalgamation, this accruing of meaning that has come from multiple meanings being layered over one another. Did I mm -hmm. do well? Yes. Yeah, you're Because I only have a master's in library and information science. This is just, this is amateur level fancy speak. Parchment. Parchment used to be more expensive, and so people would scrape off or clean parchments <laughs> and reuse them. But you can find, you can like read the traces of what used to be on them, and so they, it's yeah, yeah. And and in today's economy, relationships with Jake Gyllenhaal function the same way. <laughs> Amen. He just scraped the meaning right off them, and 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 plaster new meaning on top of them, and that is the beautiful thing that Taylor Swift has done with the ten minute version. Okay, 
let's talk lines, right? Okay. So I have I have for us here, okay? Uh-huh. Because okay, okay. Sorry, I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited too. Because I promised listeners or because I told listeners that it's not just Jake Gyllenhaal, it is Jake Gyllenhaal a character and the character represents a bad ex-boyfriend who like, you know, strings you along and then leaves you hanging. And a bad ideology. A bad ideology. What I think is beautiful, both about the original version of the song and then even more so about the 10 minute, is that if you listen to it, what it is about more than anything else is Taylor Swift's assertion that her subjective experience of this relationship has meaning and value. That's right. right? That, That's that right. she cannot be shamed out of the importance she ascribes to it just because her partner is pretending it doesn't matter. And like you say, you hear that in a very real way in the short version, and then you hear it in a much more complex and angry way in the 10-minute version. That's right. I want to start with the original bridge. It's also the bridge in the 10-minute version, but nevertheless. And I quote, And you call me up again just to break me like a promise, so casually cruel in the name of being honest. End quote. I swear to God, puts Shakespeare to shame <laughs> the finest rhyming couplet in the history of English literature. Ugh. Okay, so we already know, listeners to the original song already know, man, there is something going on here where this guy is just making her feel like absolute garbage and saying, I'm just being honest about it. Okay, so which is such a fucking bold line too, in the midst of like deeply confessional songwriting. Yes. Right. Like is the really fascinating thing. It's like, oh, you are also doing something right now in the name of being honest. But the really crucial things is that in the name of being honest, you are not being casually anything. No, you are being calculatedly cruel, if anything. <laughs> calculatedly and lengthily cruel. Searingly cruel. Poetically, beautifully. Yeah. Mm. Irrefutably cruel. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I, As a person who represses all of my aggression, it really, <laughs> God, it just thrills me to the core. <laughs> so our re-release provides us, the listeners, with additional context about this bad man, bad ideology, being particularly older than the speaker of the song and using that age difference as an opportunity not only to humiliate her, but also to place the responsibility of the relationship not working out on her. So we have the new lines, quote, you said if we had been closer in age, maybe it would have been fine, and that made me want to die. The idea you had of me, who was she? A never needy, ever lovely jewel whose shine reflects on you, not weeping in a party bathroom, some actress asking me what happened. You. That's what happened. You. And the fucking punchline, quote, and I was never good at telling jokes, but the punchline goes. But the punchline goes, I'll get older, but. 
but your lovers stay my age. I have chills. I have goosebumps. <laughs> and what I love about what you've pulled out here specifically, and the reason that I think this was worth interrupting you mm. in this essay, I will, to discuss specifically about this song is the way that it encapsulates, I feel like, the turn that Taylor Swift has taken in her own writing life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Say more. Say more. Say so much more. I think as young women, as part of the intimate publics of young women, we are given lots of narratives about who we should be, how we should be, and they are not usually written by women. Right. They are they are generally speaking catering to the needs of the patriarchal. So it's all about patriarchal expectations. And what you don't realize when you are a young woman and you're interacting with people who have more power over you, who are forwarding these narratives, is that they're all fucking bunk. Right? <laughs> like that, that that they're garbage. And that it is this idea of of basically like we tell women and men in hetero relationships that like they should be able to get all of the good parts of being with a partner without any of the work, without any of the care, without any of that. We both instruct women that that's what they should present. Mm -hmm. And we tell men that's what they should expect. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. And that's what you see so clearly in that second couplet. Right. The idea you had of me, who was she? A never needy, ever lovely jewel whose shine reflects on you. Mm. That's what Mm. all of us were sold. And for a long time, that is who Taylor Swift sold herself as. And of course, then then received so much misogynist criticism for performing precisely the version of femininity that Every single message was telling her it was her job to perform. And not just that, but for responsively changing the version of femininity based on feedback from the public. When the public was like, no, you're dating too many men. She's like, "Okay, I'm going to stop dating men completely. And all you're going to see of me socially is how I'm socializing with women. And then people were like, you're only socializing with the wrong women. And this is obviously performative. And she's like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm a villain now. So just I can't do anything right. So I'm just evil. Right. And she was very much stuck in this feedback loop where she kept trying to meet unrealistic expectations and not understanding the value of really anchoring herself in just like her own experience of the world. And what you see here is she's being like, fuck that noise. (laughs) Right. She's not a never needy, ever lovely jewel. She is weeping in a party bathroom and telling an actress, the reason I'm crying in here is that dirtbag. (laughs) (laughs) That's your bag right there. That's why I'm here. That's why this is happening to me. And I think it's meaningful to point out that she performs the entire 10 minute version of this on Saturday Night Live, which is like it's when a musician is given the right to sort of define their own artistic trajectory and artistic vision. Like Saturday Night Live or an award show, those are the places you get to do it in a really public way. It's where you get to tell the people who don't care about you normally, this is what I'm about. And she performed this song. And you know what? She fucking crushed. (laughs) I mean, that's what because she she is impossibly permanently intertwined with like a public performance of femininity that has made her successful, right? Like she is a a thin white blonde cis woman. So there are lots of aspects of like who she is and how she moves through the world that are 
you know, performance or not performance are just always going to sort of inherently frame who who she is and the kinds of public she's capable of summoning into being. And, you know, there's there's we we simply can't get into why, for example, it would be so much harder for a Beyonce to create right. intimate publics, why the intimate public is particularly the work of white women. And why, like, we, we kind of see what happened when Lizzo tried to create an intimate public. And... Yeah. Meaningfully, a white girl. Yeah. Right? I do think her girlishness has been an essential part of why we let her be messy and unfinished and imperfect in a way that we don't allow adult women, for the most part, and certainly not adult Black women, to be in public. And um, a willingness to be messy is kind of a central thing to to that intimacy building. It's that willingness to be messy, right, that creates intimacy. And for better or for worse, it is that intimacy that fuels the vast capitalist machine that is Taylor Swift, Inc., right? It's like, you know that this new 10-minute version depicts reality in this richer, more complex way. And that's why you need it in five different colored vinyls. That's <laughs> All right. with different collectible covers, right? Like you love me so much that you must demonstrate it by buying everything. <laughs> I I do think it's, I think it's worth noting that like the distinction between Taylor Swift re-recording her entire albums and not just yeah. re-recording some hits and making right. like a like a like a best of or or Taylor's greatest hits or something like that like like the fact that she she's not wrong that fans will repurchase fans who already had the deluxe 1989 are clamoring to buy yeah. the deluxe 1989 like like sunset moon edition whatever it's gonna be <laughs> they're gonna buy it and it's 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 inextricable from the intimacy with which she not only invites you into her sort of autobiographical experiences via her song lyrics but also the way that she invites fans into like her fights with her labels. <laughs> right. But yeah. then being a fan of Taylor Swift becomes not only vibing and identifying with her songs, but also like rebuying her albums when she asks you to do so. We didn't we didn't really have a chance to talk about um the juxtapolitical, but like Berlant talks specifically, and this is the like feminism as the nosy neighbor kind of thing. Like like sure. um Berlant talks about women's uh culture and intimate publics as being juxtapolitical because they are not political in the same way that more hegemonic discourse publics are able to be political. And so I think that like Taylor Swift's very public beefs with her exes and with her former record labels and with people like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, it exists outside of a kind of actual political framework, but it allows young femme women identified people to kind of play with feminism in a way that is like feminism light. Does that make sense? She's like the perfect Trojan horse. 
right? She is garbed in the clothing of someone who conforms perfectly to patriarchal expectations. And unfortunately, because those expectations are so garbage, she has internally become the crone that we all are. And she is she is giving crone lessons to people still entrapped in the patriarchal thing. That said, they are very limited. Yeah. It's like, sure, Trojan horse, but I'm not convinced there's soldiers inside the horse. One of her strengths as an artist and one of her shortcomings as an artist is that she is phenomenally self-righteous. <laughs> she has this incredibly rich experience of her own life. And I think she has a really, 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 really limited ability to imagine anyone else's. And I think in some ways that's part of what makes her art so strong because she has all of these sensory details that let us enter into those moments and really embody them. Yeah, she's got she is like a master of voice as as a like not just in the sense of like singing voice, but the sense of like having a narrative voice in her work that is evocative and specific. And it does always mean that she is always focused on the ways that she is being harmed and she is vastly less adept at understanding the ways that she is perpetuating harm or understanding her capacity to be that. And uh, it's it's disappointing. And I do hope she matures out of it. I want want to tell you guys about a lyric that I am completely obsessed with. In the song, Hits Different. And the reason why I'm obsessed with this lyric is because I think that it is, like, self-parodic in a very (laughs) sly Mm. and fun way. Mm -hmm. And it's a rare example of a song where she talks about herself as being an asshole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's this very strange sort of rhyming couplet that doesn't quite become of rhyming. Okay, it's four li- It's four lines. I'm just going to read them to you. That won't put Shakespeare to shame. It will put Shakespeare to okay. shame because it's so good. <laughs> I used to switch out these Kens. I just I ghost. Rip the bandit off and skip town like an asshole outlaw. Freedom felt like summer then on the coast. Now the sun burns my heart and the sand hurts my feelings. The lyric, the sand hurts my feelings, which is a failed rhyme, like it anticipates, right? It's like A, B, A, Z, feelings. (laughs) So it's a failed rhyme that instead allows her to insert this line that like she's positioned herself as the asshole. And now she's like, no, 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 but I'm the one who's being harmed. Remember, I'm always the one who's being harmed. I'm harmed so much that the sand hurts my feelings. And it's, I think it's so funny, but also like funny at the level of like, like she knows. Yeah. She knows. She's totally aware of this persona that she has generated. And there's no outside to it because when you are an artist of this level of fame, there is no outside to your public persona. You simply can't escape it and create something that isn't in conversation with you as a public figure because you've been a public figure your entire fucking yeah. adult life. Yeah. And so instead, all you can do is just continue to play in the space. So I spoke earlier about the way that she is very consciously creating a uh, publicly consumable narrative of who she is and a private narrative of who she is that is for the people who truly engage. And what I would say is that leads to her picking garbage singles, Mm. by and large. Mm -hmm. That said, I think it's telling that with Midnight's, 
One, the single that she picked happens to be one of my favorite songs on the album. And it is absolutely like the most self-lacerating song Mm, I think she's ever written. It's Antihero. Antihero. It's me. Of course. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And it really is just unabashedly self-critical. And it is one of the ones where like you don't see her introducing somebody else into the space and saying that they are the problem. She's like, no, it's me (laughs) and Mm -hmm. my inability to stop engaging with what everyone thinks of me and stop reshaping myself to meet their expectations. Like that's the source of my misery. It it isn't, it isn't Kanye West. It isn't Scooter Braun. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And I think that that's a very interesting step for her as an artist. And I'm really excited to see where she gets to grow from here, how she grows from here. Uh, Cause I have real optimism about that. I honestly cannot and this is why i will never be as successful a pop star as taylor swift <laughs> i can't imagine <laughs> don't tell yourself short Mark. <laughs> there's still time there's still I time can't imagine following the eras tour with anything other than retirement like i <laughs> this is like she's peaked but will she peak again will she further climb and you know what i do truly have faith that she will because she is extremely talented. Her songwriting skills are phenomenal. I'm constantly just like, (gasps) songs that I've listened to a hundred times surprise me every time. It's, she's very, very good. She will, I'm sure, continue to grow. But like, how? How can the heiress tour not end with retirement? Maybe it will. Rock opera. I know she will grow artistically. I don't know if she will ever be as absolutely and unquestionably culturally dominant as she is in this moment right now, right? Like, um, we're recording this right after a weekend where she, like, appeared at a football game in America. And it's like every single outlet is like, oh, my God, Taylor Swift appeared at a football game. This is huge news. To the extent that, like, um, Spotify, like, created a new playlist for me, and it's like, tailgate party. And it's a picture of Taylor Swift at the game. And it's like, we're in our football era. And it's just like, like, Spotify doesn't do things like that if they aren't going to make money off of it. That's right. I I hope for her sake as an individual that she stops being this pervasive. But I think she is going to continue to grow and succeed artistically. I'm very excited to see what that looks like. Yeah. And no matter what her next era is as a musician, it's going to be really interesting to see the role that she continues to play or doesn't continue to play in terms of the shaping of this thing we call women's culture. Because whether or not she stays at the center of it as a figure or somebody else steps into her place, that's going to tell us a lot about the conversations we are having about gender and feminism. The Nosy Neighbor. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at awitchplease.ca. 
Also on the website, you can find all kinds of tools to foster your participation in the Material Girls Intimate Public, including a link to subscribe to our Substack, which we are now releasing twice a month. Ooh, ooh, ah, ooh. yay. You can also find our transcripts, our merch. There's some really hot new merch coming. Keep your eye on the space. Ooh. Our reading lists and, of course... Most importantly, a link to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can find so, so much bonus content, an embarrassment of riches. (laughs) Margaret, where can the listeners find more of you? So where I spend the most time is on Instagram at Mrs. Friday Next. I write as part of the writing team that produces the Two Bossy Dames newsletter at uh, two bossy dames, that's substack.com. And hey, maybe you're looking to increase your uh, parasocial relationship with us. Uh, we're on Instagram and threads and possibly another platform, depending on whether or not there's a paywall, at Oh Witch Please. And we're on TikTok at Oh Witch Please Pod. Do you love our theme song? It's called Shopping Mall and it's by Auto Syndicate. And you can develop an intimate public by checking them out on Bandcamp. And to ensure you can cultivate your parasocial circle, I'm going to thank everyone by name on the Witch Please Productions team. So thanks to our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. Our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. And our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. And at the end of every episode, we will continue to thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out this episode to Meredith B. Valeruska. I would say Valerv... I'm pretty sure that this person has been like an OG Witch Please fan, so we've probably gotten this pronunciation before. Anyway, Zoe M.S., Emily, no last name, just Emily, Ruby O., Julia M., Anna M., Andrea P., Stephanie T., who is, P.S., a former graduate student of mine. (gasps) Aw. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next episode to tackle yet another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later, reputators. Later, reputators.